Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. This is the fifth and last episode of the Healthcare Data in the US series. In the first episode, Arif Natu, CEO and co-founder of Kamado Health, described how the company is planning to capture and de-identify every encounter patients have with the US healthcare system. The second episode featured Phil Lindemann, VP of Business Intelligence at Epic, and Epic's clinical informaticist Dave Little, who talked about Epic Cosmos, a database of EHR data from 178 million patients. In the third episode, Samir Uni, business development lead for healthcare at Palantir Foundry, explained the principles of Palantir in healthcare, why they support an open data approach, and how knowledge from other industries is transferred to healthcare. In the fourth episode, we debated the experience with building solutions on top of EHR's challenges related to connecting electronic health records and the need for better interoperability APIs to really enable data to be used for health outcomes improvement with representatives of four companies working on automating care tasks, providing clinicians with clinical decision support systems and creating synthetic data records. In today's final episode, Ardi Aryanpur, CEO of Sixter, explains how Sixter provides its clients with an operating system for research of clinical data and tracking patient data to create new solutions. Enjoy the discussion and tune in to other episodes as well. This series will be summarized in our newsletter. Find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. And subscribe to get the summary directly in your inbox. Now let's go straight to today's discussion. Ardi, hello and welcome to this series actually about healthcare data in the US. It's a complex topic even for those that live in the US, that work in the US. And today we're going to talk a little bit more about how you're tackling basically data gathering and more, more than that, enabling the data to be used for various purposes. I will leave it up to you to correct me how, you know, Sixter differentiates itself from others, because a lot of people have a hard time figuring that out. How would you say that you differentiate yourself? I, when I was looking at the website, I defined you as a data aggregator, and then you corrected me that you're basically working on an operating system. So tell us more about how do you choose the clients that you work with, who can access data through Sixter, and what is that data used for? Yeah, so, you know, we started out direct-to-consumer, and so I think that's where there's a lot of confusion. But to, I guess, level-set everyone in understanding what Sixter really is, it's really simple. It's all about seeking health data, 
right? Hence why we believe everyone is a seekster because you're seeking health data. And you can be a pharma company, you can be a payer, you can be a provider, you can be a patient, obviously, you can be a parent. Any person is really seeking health data. However, what we've done in the past couple years with our clients is really innovated and pioneered an operating system for both healthcare and digital health. So we empower both patients and caregivers to bring all their health data in one place and where they can actually share that data through the consents and view and visualize that data and have an experience that they've never had before. Now, our partners are large pharma companies, large payers, large providers. It's the three Ps. And those entities all have different use cases, whether that may be for patient registries that they want to launch or clinical trials, or they want to enable better member care. All these types of use cases, Seekster's really been leading the industry. And the reason being is because we are not a platform. Everyone else out there is a platform. We're not a platform. We don't own your data. We don't have anything to do with a direct-to-consumer portal of any sort, even though we have that available. But that's more for our VIPs. Our business is a white label so that top global pharma companies such as Boeing or Ingelheim and Takeda and others that are utilizing our technology can use our operating system so that they can help their patients onboard and bring consented data for their use cases. Okay. If we dive into that a little bit further. So basically, it's a white label solution. You give it to the partner that you work with, a pharma company. So what happens then? Do they already usually have the list of patients that they, for example, want to enroll into the clinical trial and then they ask the patients to go on the platform or how does the patient data come to that platform? Yeah, there's two ways really. One is the fact that they get the launch instantaneously. We put up an instance for them. A great example is if you look at National Pancreas Foundation, which is the largest patient registry in the United States that didn't have any data, that didn't have any tools to empower their patients. But if you go to npf.seekster.com, it's a digital front door that we've built that we launch for those partners, whether that's a patient registry a pharma company, or a payer. So in essence, if I look at this through the eyes of pharma, and just so we clarify, because there's a lot of nuances among companies, the pharma company, for example, still needs to figure out how they're going to recruit the patients that are going to end up in the platform. That's not the problem that you're addressing. That's something that others do. And basically, when that problem is solved then the patients come, say, for to the platform. It, it's a little bit easier to imagine when you talk about patient groups or specific disease 
foundations because obviously they have members and lists of patients. You're right, because patient registries and foundations have an audience already. And when they deploy a white label of Seekster, it's very easy for them to aggregate things. Now, pharma companies also are very interested in launching their own patient registries. They may be branding it in a different way, right? But they're very interested in that. So that's another segment on how they get patients on. Another way is they have different initiatives where they're working on a specific use case, whether that's rare disease, autoimmune, cancer, infectious disease, whatever that may be, whatever the disease might be, there has to be a sticky point of where those patients would actually come on. And so they would be doing advertisements to those patients, to those types of members, whether that's through social media or other marketing initiatives. Once they do that, they go to a landing page that's the education, the patient education on, let's say, specifically on, let's say, something related to Alzheimer's, right? And if it's a caregiver that has Alzheimer's patient in their family, like their mom, their dad, their grandma or grandpa, they can go ahead and log in and sign up themselves and their family for that specific Alzheimer's related disease. If let's say Biogen was running some sort of initiative like this, but Seekster is the technology that is, you know, empowering both the patient and the researcher and the pharma company. So we become a, I would say, a recruitment tool for pharma companies. And that's mm-hmm. what we've seen. And the reason being is because pharma companies right now for clinical trials or decentralized trials are spending millions, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get the right patient the right data for the right drug. And they want to follow patients longitudinally. They want a live digital patient, as we call it. And you can't have that with the traditional way of collecting data. You can't have that with the traditional way of engaging with patients. And so you have to use a technology, an operating system that becomes their platform so that they're in full control from A to Z on the patient onboarding. For a while, you were promoting yourself as the company who solved the interoperability issue. (laughs) So now let's dive into how the data comes to the platform. Sixter was founded in 2016. That's when the 21st Century Cares Act was actually enacted. And I'm wondering... Is there a correlation between you starting the company and the fact that this happened? What impact did this have on your further development? Because the key point in uh, for this discussion about the 21st Century Cares Act is all the rules that have been put in place to prevent information blocking and just improve interoperability. Yeah, so it's so interesting. We fell on interoperability on accident. And I know you've heard me say this at various different conferences, talks, and maybe some other podcasts. But what's really interesting, in 2016, we had no idea what 
the 21st Century Cures Act was. We actually got a call and spent time working with Seema Verma and Don Rucker, who were part of the past administration, who were leading the efforts for HHS, Health Human Services, and also CMS, and the Office of Interoperability with ONC, with the National Coordinator for Healthcare Technology, being Don Rucker at the time. Seekster was used, actually, as the concept. And so we were 21st Century Cheers Act compliance before even the rules came out. Because the rules came out, actually, on March 9th of 2020. It took years to get it through legislation and law and all that. We never knew Seekster would become law when we started in January of 2016, when we founded the company officially and got it funded from the beginning. At the end of the day, law is great, but execution and really helping patients is what we're all about. I'm glad that you mentioned execution because I'm really interested in learning how you put all the pieces together. How do you connect to the patient records that are in different systems in the previous episode, I think it was Greg Miller that mentioned that a chronic patient usually goes to 9 to 14 different providers because patients change insurance companies, insurance companies work with different providers and you suddenly end up in a different system. That's why the data in the US uh, in healthcare is so all over the place. And uh, I just am interested in hearing how did you go to every EHR provider to do the integrations that you need to pull in the data? And what data do you perhaps still not capture? Since despite the fact that by law, patients should get access to their data, they still sometimes have challenges accessing the data, or there's still things that are on paper or there's records that you don't get in a digital form and you have to go physically pick up in hospitals. So if you would have to estimate the percentage of the picture that you have about a patient in terms of the clinical data, which is the key thing for you, how would you assess that? Yeah, no, there's a lot to unravel there. Let me start with the fact that we built an interoperability engine to begin with. And that was one of the hardest things I think we've ever done. How we did it is we have an incredible engineering team and we had an incredible, I would say, both alpha and beta patient team, thousands of patients that utilized our Seekster 1.0 software when even Dr. Eric Topol, who was the biggest skeptic in digital health, tried our system in August of 2018, and then he tweeted publicly about it. When that happened, we got seven point something million hits on our website. We had to shut down our website because too many people were trying to access it. Dr. Eric Topol is just so famous within digital health. And he said something about his own data and he shared four different providers, his Fitbit data, his genomics data from 23andMe, his nutrition data from MyFitnessPal. We had no idea where he had data. We had no idea that our system 
and our engineering could bring longitudinal data from 1985 to present. So he is still one of the best examples because one, everyone knows him in digital health. And two, everyone knows that he's a skeptic. And three, he just said it how it is. He shared publicly as the first patient, as the first caregiver, as the first physician, as the first innovator, his health data through Seekster, and it took about 24 hours. Now our algorithms have gotten so fast that we can do that same process in about 24 milliseconds. And you're absolutely right. Chronic disease patients have multiple different providers. And here's the thing about interoperability with data I think people don't understand. It's not just about medical data. Of course, we're all focused on EMR data, medical data being so important. But the genetics data is so important. The wearable data is so important. The medical device data, remote patient monitoring data is so important. The claims data is so important. But none of them actually are as important as when you connect all of them together in a single line and graph. And so we've standardized and harmonized all of the data on the medical side, whether that be the ICD-9, ICD-10, SNOMED, RX norm codes on the back end. We've automized that process. That's all the heavy lift engineering that our developers and an engineering team have been cracking at now for seven plus years. It's just taken Tajasa a lot of time. It's taken a lot of effort. It's taken a lot of trial and error with multiple different patients, with multiple different providers. We built statistical learning tools on the back end. I wouldn't call it AI because I think that would be hyping the situation, but we built some very intuitive statistical learning tools on the back end to help recognize various different EMRs. And there's multiple different versions of all scripts and Epic and Cerner and Practice Fusion. We bring all that data and we call it the Seekster Stitch, where we stitch the data together so that you can have a longitudinal visualization of data. And getting back to earlier what you stated about aggregation, you know, aggregation is one twentieth of what we do. It's not just bringing data together; we're bringing it to life. We're building beautiful dashboards for patients so they can track and monitor their health at all times and in real time. That is another big differentiator. We are now experts in real-time, real-world data, and we're pushing use cases for RWE, which is real-world evidence. And how much does data have to be processed when you transfer it from the patient records, because still different systems, different ways of writing in the data. How much do you have to process it and structure it? And how do you structure it in what kind of third or specification so the aggregated combination can then be used for research? Yeah, great question there. I think one of the biggest things that people don't understand is how fragmented the healthcare systems are in the United States. Even though there's HIPAA, there's really the P in HIPAA really standing for portability. We, even through the pandemic, we were not as a country in the United States 
to really, I think, push the limits on that. But I think it is getting better. Obviously, everyone knows about fire, fast healthcare interoperability resources, and we have every single fire connection in there. If it's in fire format, then it's very easy. But most of the data, 95% of the data is actually non-fire, and we have focused on the non-fire data. That's how Seekster actually started in 2016, because no one was using fire in 2016. It was even barely out to any health systems of any sort. It wasn't until really Apple Health got going on fire, and then that became a more of a standard, to be honest. And what we've done is we're able to bring fire data and non-fire data and really mesh that together. And your comment about the unstructured data, we built a data refinery on the back end. That's really our secret sauce is, you know, how we cleanse the data. We clean the data. So, you know, vitamin D or K is characterized in 40 different ways in 12 different EMRs. But if there's a patient that brings together six, seven, eight, or even all 12 of those providers that are characterizing it in different ways, we still can ingest it. We still can standardize it. And that's how we visualize it. You can only visualize health data if you've built a data refinery on the back end. And so it happens at the patient level. It happens at the moment of request. And it doesn't matter what the data source is, whether it's medical, fitness, wearable, medical device, claims, pharmacy data, social determinants of health data. Those are the types of data that we're really focused on. The hardest data, though, is imaging data. And it's not that we can't get imaging data. We can get imaging data, but the imaging data has not been digitized. Right now, we have over 99% coverage of the United States patient records that have been digitized. That's over 300 something million patient records. And that's a significant amount. And it can all be requested with one button from the individual, the patient. And is every customer that works with you, do they basically have their own repository of data that's limited to them. So for example, again, in one of the previous episodes, we heard about Epic Cosmos, which has information, clinical data from 178 million patients. And the aim of that database is that anyone that contributes that data, meaning healthcare providers, can then do research on that data. And if I think of your use case, and if I think how you would maybe combine all the data that your customers are using, would that even be possible? Or is it basically locked in to the white label version of your solution for different customers? So that's really interesting. I think you're hitting on what's the difference of a data lake versus a data river. We are not a data lake, right? So what you're speaking about is one data lake of some sort. We can power those data lakes so that they can get better data, more data, real-time data. But our solution currently and how it's being used 
for both patients and caregivers, pharma companies, payers, providers, is that white label. They're building their own data lakes, right, with our technology, but we don't have a data lake ourselves because we don't own the data. We truly believe, and this was the number one pillar I set when I founded the company in 2016, that you own your data, you should control your data, and you should be able to share your data. Those were the three answers, own, control, and share. And now our technology has been the underlying tech to enable a lot of these use cases that you're talking about. A lot of these use cases that you've spoken about on your 200 plus, congratulations, by the way, on your podcasts. You've done such a great job of covering so many different angles within faces of digital health that I think people need to understand that there just never has been a technology that was built by the people for the people. And this has been, I think, a big hindrance in, in digital health. And so we focused on the data rivers, the health rivers, but we are not a data lake. We are not a health lake. So let's talk about the patients. We now, I think, clarified like how the pharma companies, for example, work with you and use your solution. What about the patients? When we talk about the control of the data, how do patients control the data and basically I don't know if it's common that a patient would go into several different clinical trials, but hypothetically speaking, let's say that a patient is acquired or found by different pharma companies that have your solution. Would that mean that basically that patient's data would be integrated into the white label solution three times? So the patient would have to actually register three times? Great questions there. So first thing, how patients do it. It's very similar to the same way that you do banking. And so we took a fintech approach to our developments. Some of the folks probably that are listening to this are familiar with a company in finances called Mint.com for finances. The same way that you would bring your bank accounts together and then, you know, your credit cards as well as your, let's say, student loans, and you saw your net worth with some of these softwares as a service that were out there on the fintech side. We did the same thing, but we created the mint.com for healthcare, for patient data. Now, it's a lot harder because we're not talking about just zeros and ones. When your data comes from Bank of America to Chase to ING or HSBC or whatever the banking may be, both domestically or internationally, it's all the same because it's zeros and ones, it's dollars and cents. But when your data comes from your Apple Watch to your Garmin to your Medtronic device, those are three different file types. If your data comes from MD Anderson to Cleveland Clinic to Stanford Medical to Sutter Those are four different EMRs that are powering those health systems and how they, like I said, characterize that data. So that interoperability engine that we built that is not just for medical data, but for fitness data, genomics data, claims data, all the other sort of things is what drives that ingestion. 
And so patients, people, caregivers, whoever may be, select their data sources and through one consent, we're able to bring data together. We've built multiple different retrievers for different use cases. We have both a patient-mediated method as well as a credential-free method. So we have two different doors where patients can request their records depending on the data source. And then lastly, I would add on the pharma side, you're absolutely right. There's multiple different pharma, global pharmas that are utilizing our technology and we couldn't be more proud of our pharma partners to take our technology and innovation to that next level to bring patient centricity, patient centric interoperability for these use cases and these communities, disease communities, whatever that may be. Now, if you have pharma A, pharma B, pharma C, utilizing Seekster, those three pharma companies have their own instances. There are specific white labels for those companies. So if a patient is in one trial with one company, they can always sign up if they know of that trial from the other pharma company. But obviously you have to have an invitation code from that company or enterprise or whoever that may be. But even if that case is happening, they're in two different or three different instances. And this is great for patients because patients can help advance medicine. They can accelerate drug discovery and drug development. And that is the sole mission of Seekster because that's why people want to seek out their health data to help their own families at the same time there's nothing better to Jasa than giving back to the community so that my data can help your family's data. Uh, what about revoking consent? Because when we talk about patients controlling the data, I wouldn't say that's limited to ticking the box that you consent to sharing in the initial stage. It would mean that you can also change your mind. That's the idea of the dynamic consent, which is more or less a conceptual idea, but it's not exactly used in practice because it's very difficult to basically build things if patients kept turning on and off their data sharing. Since we're talking about the control of the data, is there anything that you can add that there in terms of how do you address that issue or how do you look at the debates around dynamic consent? Absolutely. There's a couple things here. So we spent a lot of time building digital e-consent so that our partners can launch their customized consents for their use cases, right? And that's first thing. Second thing is, Patients can opt out and they can choose. This is the most brilliant part of the engineering of Seekster. And the team gets all the credit for this with working with patients. Patients told us we want to choose what to consent. So you can choose, for example, to only consent to share your Apple Watch data and not any of your medical data. Or you can choose to share only your allergy data 
and not your medications for that specific trial. But at the same time, you're still getting the benefits of using the Seekster operating system for free because patients never pay for it. The partners are the ones that are paying for the technology so that they can deploy it to patients so that they can impact patient lives at scale. But those patients can opt out, delete, remove at any time, whether they're in a trial or they're not. So they have 100% control of their data. If we go to the broader topic of healthcare data management in the US, how would you describe it in 2023? How do you see, for example, the framework standardizing the process of exchange of health data, TEFCA, which was introduced last year? How is that, for example, impacting you if it does? And just a general opinion of healthcare data in the US, according to your observation, critique, thoughts. Yeah, no, look, it's perfect timing on this. Next week, I'll be doing the fireside chat at the American Telemedicine Conference with the chief medical officer of ONC. Just a week and a half ago in Torrey Pines in La Jolla here at the Digital Summit Conference and Venture Partnering Summit, I was with Mickey Tripathi, who's an incredible gentleman who's leading the ONC. He's the national coordinator for healthcare technology. And we were spending time talking about TEFCA, HIPAA, FIRE, and all the great stuff. Obviously, TEFCA just announced some new things just a couple days ago. We are, I think, I would say cautiously optimistic because not because we're against FIRE or TEFCA or HIPAA or any of these things. At the end of the day, to be honest with you, from my vantage point, all these things are great because they bring awareness. But if there's no execution, if there aren't patients, if there aren't researchers, if there aren't companies utilizing technologies like Seekster that are 21st Century Cheers Act, that are for TEFCA, that bring different data types together, then I think the industry doesn't move forward. And it's not just our technologies. There's a couple technologies out there, right? I would say we're the only operating system, but there's several different platforms. There's different API plays for bringing in data, and those are great for certain use cases. Ours are great for various different use cases. But I think um, the problem in the U.S. is actually getting more. <laughs> and maybe some people would actually argue with me, but from my vantage point, I see the interoperability problem growing faster than cancer. So McKinsey estimated a couple years ago, I think it was around 2018 timeframe, that interoperability was a $35 billion ballooning annualized problem, not 35 billion just as a whole, but every year, 35 billion plus dollars were being basically wasted because there is no interoperability. And it's like this. In Europe, you have amazing trains that can get you from place to place. 
If you look at the United States with all the money and power that's in our country here, our train systems suck. We have an interoperability problem on transportation. And that's because GM and other folks within the oil sector want us to drive our cars, which is great. Look, I love my car, but I would love to be able to take a fast train from San Diego to San Francisco in an hour or to Vegas instead of having to drive 10 hours. Why is it that when I'm in Europe, I can take a train from Amsterdam to Paris? I could take a train from Vienna to Prague. I could take a train from London to Paris through the English Channel underwater for almost an hour. And those things have been built for decades now. But it's 2023 And in the United States, we can't get from point A on the West Coast to point B on the East Coast unless we take a six-hour flight. And so I use this example with healthcare as well. In the U.S., you have 300 million-plus folks. It's a lot of people, right? When you think of diseases and one out of X amount of people getting cancer and Alzheimer's and rare disease or whatever it may be, that's a lot of data, right? That's That adds to the interoperability issues every day. That's why our systems are so fragmented because they were never built at the beginning to be able to house all this data in a seamless manner. I think one only system that does that is the NHS in the UK. Obviously, Europe has its own issues with interoperability too from country and country. But the U.S. itself, I think, is in a dangerous state if we don't do something fast because we're just spending way too much money on healthcare costs. And if you don't have the right data at the right time, people die. I've had this experience with my own family. We ran a tumor board for my dad in six hours, got him into surgery in less than two weeks. Because of Seekster. If we didn't have Seekster and if I wasn't the CEO of Seekster, being able to do all that care coordination with the data and our great scientists and our great bioinformaticians that work at our company, my dad might not be alive today because he wouldn't have gotten his 52 millimeter tumor out of his ascending colon fast enough. And so I truly believe health data is medicine. And The U.S. has to lead this effort. We have all the great minds, the great technologies. There just needs to be, Tajasa, more collaboration. There needs to be more folks like you that are telling the stories of faces of digital health so that someone at the top hopefully hears it. Someone at the top hopefully understands that there's technologies that can help millions of patients and change this dynamic. I think we have a long road ahead. I have a follow-up question there. It's a strong statement to say that the interoperability problem is growing like or more like cancer. And I want to know why are you actually worried about interoperability getting worse? Because that's not the impression that I got from other speakers. Some of them were optimistic about TEFCA, were optimistic about just the improvements that have happened 
with fire, the improvements that are happening with APIs, EMR providers so epic. They also say that they work with external vendors. It's not necessarily easy, but it's possible. So why do you think that things will not improve? Yeah, because from my vantage point and the things that we're seeing is how, you know, there's growth within population. There's growth within disease, right? There's the pandemic that happened within COVID. We don't even have interoperability on Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So I think I'm not disagreeing with the other folks. I just have a different lens on it because of the use cases we've been dealing with, right? Now, all these rules and regulations and standards are great. Those are to make it better. I'm not disagreeing with that. But the United States as a whole is just too big. It's that it doesn't matter if Tefka and Fire come to every single health system tomorrow. The key is the usability. The user experience is not there. And that's what those other folks are not seeing. We spend a lot of time on the UI UX of patient design, patient interaction, patient engagement, and those incentives are still not there. I'll give you a great example to that. In the pandemic, we had telemedicine explode because everyone was at home. How many times did people have to go fill out forms still, right? How many times do you have to go fill out forms when you go to your doc office? Just the paper trail is millions of dollars that we're wasting. Forget about what happens when you know a patient like my dad can't get the right care at the right time because he doesn't have access or doesn't know about the technology. I think we're way behind on the education. And the folks that think that it's doing better is because they're in a very small bubble. They're not thinking about the average patient, the average Joe and Jennifer down the street that don't know about technology, that don't know that you can do these things, that don't have access. That's hundreds of millions of people. And so that's where I think it's getting worse because we see it from a different lens. But what is getting better is the people that are working on solving the problems. Those things are getting better. Is it being executed the right way? Another great example is the big All of Us project that is funded by the NIH and the taxpayer dollars. It's been it's not been a success. They have to redo so many different things. And it's because they picked the wrong technology or there was politics involved. No one wants to talk about these things. But I always talk about them. And the reason being is because I think people should know. People should know that there's real problems out there. And politics, bureaucracy, get in the way of interoperability. Get in the way of patients actually using the right technology. What's the biggest challenge for you and the further development of Sixter? Yeah, I think right now we're at such an inflection point because we've been able to, it took years to get to where we are. It was very hard. We failed hundreds of times to get to where we are. We learned a lot. We went through 
uncharted water. We had no idea where we were going to end up. And our partners helped build the operating system. Our biggest challenge right now, I would say, is for folks to really understand what the power of Seekster is. It's incredible when you're able to take a look at, let's say, an Alzheimer's community's data with a cohort data, and then we're able to do a search and see if they have any type 2 diabetes markers or what the comorbidities are behind. We've built some incredible tools behind the operating system that's, like I said, beyond that data aggregation. And because we were known at the beginning for interoperability and data aggregation, it's taking some time for folks to understand that we built an operating system for digital health. We built an operating system for healthcare, and we are here to help. We don't want our technology siloed. We want to make you the champion, whoever that may be, whether that's the patient, the provider, the payer, the pharma company, the clinical trial that's being run, whatever that entity may be. With our technology, you can launch a digital health company within a week. That's incredible. I just have one more question, and that is, so in two weeks, two weeks, you're going to be also at NextMed San Diego. What are you going to talk about? It's, I think, two and a half weeks because we're going to be there two and together a half. Yeah. with yeah, a bunch yeah. of amazing people. Yeah. Yeah, look, Next NextMed is really important to us. I actually, let me see if I can, that's, this right here is my XMed. 2018 award for the company to watch. So I think Daniel Kraft gets all the credit for that, our dear friend. He knew how important Seekster was back then and gave myself and Seekster an opportunity and we won the one company to watch. And fast forward now and look, we're finally on the faces of digital health with you that took forever to get your attention to, but we thank you so much. Look, we've had a lot of experience with pharma, I'm going to talk about the future of pharma with real-world data. We're powering a lot of different real-world evidence studies, and it's really interesting. I think the way to deliver interoperability, here's a teaser for NextMed on March 13th to 16th, is through patient engagement. That is the key, and that this is something we've learned. Interoperability will be delivered through patient engagement. And I'll be talking about that with various different use cases. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically. And also check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. And see what we covered in the last month. Stay tuned.